0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. We pick up where we left off last week. You remember last week we kind of finished our series on idols of the heart. And we finished by looking at Jeremiah 2 and looking at the evils that were committed by Israel. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 2, Verse 11, God says, has a nation changed gods when they were not even gods? No, the worshipers of Baal continued to worship Baal, even though he wasn't real. He isn't real, but they never changed their gods. They were faithful. And then God says, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So be appalled, O heavens, at this shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, because my people have committed two evils, And these are the two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, evil number two, they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we described what that looks like, what that is. Those are the two evils that Israel committed. Those are the two evils that we commit every time we commit idolatry. Every time we sin, we are looking for satisfaction in something other than God. Running away from him to whatever man-made things that we can think of to satisfy our desires. So the question that I have this morning for us is, what is the opposite of these evils? What is the opposite of the evil of forsaking God and hewing out for ourselves cisterns? What's the opposite of that? If we work backwards, first we have to stop hewing out cisterns. We have to stop looking to broken cisterns and trying to find things in this world that will satisfy us. We have to stop going to these things, looking to anything other than God to satisfy us. And that's really what we have studied with regard to idolatry. We have to stop going there. But secondly, once we cease the cistern work, we need to run back to God and drink deeply from him. He is the fountain of living water and we need to run back to him. So my next question is, why don't we do that? What stops us from doing this? What stands in our way from running back to God and drinking deeply from Him? And if I can answer it in one word, it would be unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief is what stands in our way between turning from our broken cisterns and running back to Christ. Running back to the fountain of living water. We don't really believe, ultimately, we don't really believe that our cisterns are broken. We don't really believe that our cisterns don't satisfy us. We can wake up time and time again, and it is Leah, it is Leah, it is Leah, but we think, you know what, tomorrow will be different. My sin will satisfy. My, my daughter and I have a, a saying that we're trying to get into her mind. If only we all understood this practically, oh, life would be better. Um, We say all the time, disobedience brings sorrow, but obedience brings joy. Disobedience brings sorrow, but obedience brings joy. We want her to know that. We want her to see obeying is really the better choice because it brings joy. Whereas disobedience, though you think you will be satisfied, ultimately is the worst choice because it does bring sorrow in the end. It brings death in the end. But we don't really believe that or else we wouldn't continue to be sinning. Functionally, our belief falters. And we don't run back to God because we don't really believe that he satisfies us. Ultimately, if we believed that, we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't go after other things. We would stay at his feet. We would stay at that fountain. Belief and receiving him as the fountain of living water, or receiving him as God who satisfies. Belief and receiving him go hand in hand. That's why in John chapter 1, Verses 11 through 12 says that Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as have received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So believing is synonymous with receiving in John chapter one to believe in Jesus is to receive him and to receive him as what? Yes, as savior. Yes, as Lord as treasure, as better than anything this world has to offer. That's why our mission statement is as follows. We, we long, we seek, we hear, hear, we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all things. If we did that, we would never sin. The reason why you argued with your spouse last week, I know nobody did that, But the reason why you argued with your spouse last week is because you truly do not believe that Jesus satisfies. The reason why you were anxious last week is because you truly did not believe that Jesus and receiving him alone as all satisfying is what your heart needs. If we truly believed in Jesus and cherished him for who he is, for all that he claims to be and promises to be for us, if we truly believe that, we would never be anxious Jesus said that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will always be with us. Matthew 6, he will provide for every need. He takes care of the grass of the field. He takes care of the birds of the air. We have no need that he will not provide. And yet we are anxious. Why? Because we don't believe. We don't believe. Think about Peter walking on the water. When when he's walking out to Jesus, he's believing. That's why he says, Jesus, if it is you... I'll believe that it's you when you tell me to come to you. So Jesus says, yeah, come on out. OK, it's Jesus. I can do this. And he starts going. But you know the story. Once he starts looking around, seeing the waves, seeing the wind, seeing everything that's going on around him, he starts to doubt and he sinks. Why? Because he stops believing that Jesus ultimately has control over his feet and over the waves and over the water and can hold him up and save him. Once he took his eyes off Jesus, he faltered. So, too, that's why Hebrews chapter 12 was our, our theme verse for the year, if you will, starting all the way back to the first sermon of the year. Fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus and stop doubting. That's why as believers in Jesus, this is one of the reasons why we are called that, we are believers. And as believers, we say day after day, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. The reality as believers is we need to grow in our belief. This doesn't mean that we don't have saving belief. I I believe that knowing Jesus Christ in a saving way uh, through the gospel is believing in him as the only way, the only truth, the only life. I believe that knowing, admitting, confessing you are a sinner, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus Christ alone for salvation And following him all the days of your life. I know that that is saving belief. But I'm talking about sanctifying belief. Talking about a belief that functions in sanctification from this point forward. As a believer that keeps us from sin. That keeps us devoted to a life that is in love with Jesus Christ as our treasure. If we are to live out the opposite of Jeremiah chapter 2. We have to grow And our belief in Jesus Christ, functional, real belief in Jesus Christ. And that's why I want to study the book of John. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If belief is our problem, and it is, then we would do well to go to a book whose purpose statement is very clearly that we would believe. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the purpose statement of the gospel. Only John and Luke give us explicit purpose statements. Luke gives it to us in verses 1 and 2, and I think into 3. The very, very outset of his gospel is his purpose statement, to write a detailed account of Jesus Christ, to compile a chronological understanding of it so that uh, Theophilus would understand who Jesus is, that he claimed to be God, and that he truly is God. Matthew and Mark don't have explicit purpose statements, but John does, along with Luke, and it's found in verse 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. John is saying, I specifically chose what I chose so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. There are so many different things he could have written about. There are so many different signs and wonders and miracles. But he chose the specific things that he chose that make up his gospel for the purpose that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you might say, well, I do believe that he is the Christ. This must be an evangelistic book. And it is. It is for non-believers to come to a place where they believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I would encourage you to continue to think about who you know that isn't saved, that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Over the course of however long it takes us to study this book, we're going to be hearing messages that were prepared by John for the purpose of helping us believe that Jesus is who we claim to be. So we will be getting gospel every Sunday. We'll be getting the gospel every single Sunday. And it, I would encourage you to bring your friends to hear God's word, hear his truth so that they would believe. And by believing, they would have life in his name. But some people look at this and go, well, see, it's for non-believers, not for believers, because I already believe. So let me have Romans. Let me have another book. Let me have a deeper, bigger, thicker book. And I would just say, I just plead with you not to think that way. If I can use the words of John Piper in the video this morning, I think that that is a little bit childish of thinking to think that I've got the gospel and now I'm ready to move on. I've got the simple things, the elementary things figured out. I'm ready to move on. John chapter 15, verse six, says that we need to learn to abide in Christ. John chapter eight, verse 31, says that we need to abide and remain in God's word Ultimately, if you and I stop believing at any one point in time and that when we cease to believe, it leads us to a life of unbelief, habitually characterized by that. Micah just read it this morning in first John. It will prove that we were never truly saved. If we just decide one day, I don't believe anymore, I don't believe this. And may we never become so prideful to think that we won't do that, that that couldn't happen to us. That's why this book is written, not just for the non-believer, but it's written to the believer, to keep on believing. God has given us His word, and we're going to read time and time again in this book. It's a lot of repetition in this book, and I love this book because of that. John's making a point. And one of the points that he makes is, God knows His sheep, God calls his sheep, God preserves his sheep, and the means by which He, by which he does that is speaking to His sheep, teaching his sheep, sanctifying his sheep. Through the word of God. So this book is evangelistic and it is for non-believers, but it is also for believers so that we would continue to believe. We would keep on believing. So don't make the mistake of thinking this is just for unbelievers. Again, if we are going to undo the evils of Jeremiah chapter two, we need to focus on believing that Jesus is who he truly claims to be. We need to believe that functionally. In this book, Jesus is calling us to draw deeply from him, the fountain of living water. And every time we come to this book on Sundays, Jesus will be giving us life-giving water, fuel to keep on believing. That's why I want to stay this book. Um, over the course of this week, as I was thinking about kind of John's purpose statement and my purpose statement for studying this. I want to give you a reason. We're not just picking books out of thin air. Just, hey, let's, let's study this one. There's reasons we have for doing this. And by the way, just be encouraged. Um, I, I do think that God led us to this book. Uh, the core group of guys, Micah, Brian, Tim, and myself got together. And I was asking them, what do you guys think we should go through? What should we study through? What does the church need? What do we need? What would be good for us? And it just funneled down. It was a beautiful thing to see because everybody said, we want to see Jesus. So let's go to a gospel. Now we've got four. Okay, we've got four options. Um, okay, out of those options, which do we like the best? If we want to see Jesus and we want to grow in our knowledge of him and understanding of him, which do we think shows us that the best? Well, we all agreed, John. So I didn't pick it. So if you don't like this series, it's their fault. It's not my fault. Um, this, we our hearts unanimously agreed on This is what we want. We want to see Jesus. The songs that we sang are the truth in our hearts. We want Jesus. We want to see him. We want to savor him. We want to love him. So over the course of this last week, as I was thinking through purpose statements and thinking through, I think in Philippians, I had four reasons we were going to study the book. I came up with 14 reasons why I wanted to study John, and I'm just going to throw them all away. Okay? The one reason why I want to study John is because I want you to see Jesus. That's it. I want you to believe in Jesus. Jesus. I want all of us to believe in Jesus. That's why I want to study this book. I want to see Jesus for who he truly is. I want to be blown away by him. I want to be astounded yet again that he knows our names, that he cares about us, that he loves us, that he died for us. Why would anyone do that, much less the God of the universe? And he did. He loves us. That's why I want to study this book, plain and simple. I want us to study because of the purpose that John gave us. Jesus is the Christ. We believe that. So, Lord, help our unbelief. We need to grow. We need to grow. So, let's start growing. John chapter 1. Let's go to the beginning. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, just a little bit of information for introductory matters. John is the author His name wasn't originally in this gospel record. He didn't sign his name on it. He didn't say, like Paul does, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Um, He didn't do that. By the way, none of the other gospels did. Um, The gospels were unanimously understood for who wrote them because it was clear who wrote them. It was church tradition who wrote them. As they were circulated um, in the world at that time, everybody knew it. And so those names were put onto those books They weren't internal in those books. And here's something very interesting. Apocryphal books, apocryphal gospels, gospel accounts that weren't originally in the Bible and shouldn't be in the Bible. They were not inspired by God. One of the biggest differences between apocryphal gospels that were added in later and the four true gospels that we find in our Bible are the apocryphal gospels had names attached to them inside of them. And if you think about it, it totally makes sense. Right. John's writing because he wants you to see Jesus. So he's not going to say, hey, I'm writing. My name's John. I live here at this address. Come see me and come get my autograph. He's not going to do that. He's going to say, believe in Jesus. I don't I, I must decrease. He must increase. Don't worry about me. Believe in Jesus. But all the apocryphal writers are writing for the purpose of trying to get a part of that action. They want a part of that. Everybody's famous who was around Jesus. I want to be famous, too. So my name, Patrick Carmichael, wrote a gospel about Jesus Christ. And now I give it to all of you. Wow, you knew him. You, you spoke to him. You lived with him. This is amazing. So when there's a name inside of it saying, I wrote it, I wrote it, I wrote it in a gospel account, it's not true. John didn't have to write that because he trusted the spirit to give his message. John was an eyewitness of all the things that he's going to be writing about. John chapter 19 verse 35 says he was at the foot of the cross. He was with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. John calls himself, he doesn't say I am John, he calls himself when he has to reference himself um, in different places in the gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you want to be known... If you have two options, would you rather be known as John or would you rather be known as the one who Jesus loves? I mean, that's amazing. It's not a prideful statement. It's a humble statement. Why does Jesus love me? This is unbelievable that Jesus would love me, but I am loved by the God of the universe. I am loved by the God of the universe. I'm sorry. I I told you to go to chapter 1. I want you to go back to 21. Go to 21 really quickly because I want you to see this. John chapter 21. You're only a chapter away. I'm sorry. I'm making you work. John chapter 21, verse 20. I want you to see so that you can know very clearly this is John. This isn't really up for debate in in anybody's minds. Anybody who would claim that the gospel of John wasn't written by him is is very, very liberal and and probably not even orthodox. Um, It's church tradition. There's so many different defenses. But internally, if you go to John 21, verse 20, Peter turns around. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. Following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Again, we know that that's John during the Last Supper. Peter sees him. Jesus had told Peter how Peter was going to die, and Peter wants to know how John's going to die. And so Peter says, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, verse 22 If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Verse 24 is the key. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is the disciple who's writing this book. And since we know from the synoptic gospels that the one who is leaning on Jesus's breast at the Last Supper is John, then we know that since the one whom Jesus loved is the one leaning on his chest is the one who is John, is the one who's writing this book. We know it. We know it. John is the one writing. He has an older brother named James. They were called the sons of thunder. You remember they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. But something radically transforms John. It's Jesus. Jesus' grace transforms him and he becomes infatuated with love. He becomes the disciple of love. A lot of people refer to him as the disciple of love. Here's a man who wants to call down fire from heaven and God transforms him. And over 80 times in his writings, he speaks of love in John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John and Revelation. He speaks of love. Love is one of the main themes of John's writing as is truth. Truth is mentioned 25 times in the Gospel of John and 20 other times in his other writings. So 45 times he talks about truth, 80 times he talks about love. But though love and truth are main words, the main word in the Gospel of John is believe. It's 100 times used in the Gospel of John, believe. He's going to speak to us about Belief that leads to saving eternal life, salvation, and belief that leads to condemnation. There are two types of beliefs. James kind of belief, belief that saves and belief that the demons have. And we'll see that played out very specifically in this book. So putting it all together with love and truth and believing, John wants us to believe the truth so that we can enter into a relationship of love with the Lord. He has a father named Zebedee. They ran a fishing business in Galilee. His mother was Salome. And according to John 1925, she might have been a sister to Mary, maybe. And if she was um, a sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus, then they would be related. Jesus and John would be related. So that's a little bit about John. When was it written? The book was written between 80 and 90 AD. And the only reason I bring that up is because you need to know this about the dating of the book. It was the last of the Gospels to be written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we refer to as the synoptic Gospels, sin together, like synonymous, sin, uh, S-Y-N, optic, seen, eyes, seen together. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, see the same events together. They see the same chronology together. They see it totally the same, uh, just from different angles. John's not a synoptic Gospel. He pulls back because the three synoptic Gospels had been in circulation, John has read all of them, and he's looking, saying, what do I want to add to the reality of Jesus' earthly ministry that isn't found in those books? That's why you need to know the date of the book. It was the last of the Gospels to be written. John decides, I'm going to give a completely different perspective, and it is very different. 90% of what is in John is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us much more of an earthly story. John gives us much more of a heavenly perspective. There's nothing about the birth, about the early life, about the baptism, about the temptation, about the transfiguration, about the Garden of Gethsemane, or about the Ascension. There's no parables. Parables are earthly stories. This is a heavenly book, and so John takes a heavenly look at Jesus. Purpose statement, we've already gone through it. Uh, John's message is that the eternal God himself has become a human The creator has become a part of his creation in order to save sinners. And he takes 21 chapters in demonstrating that God in human flesh is Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. John supports that fact about the identity of Christ by showing divine claims, by supporting those claims with the divine works and miracles and words and titles and worship and all sorts of amazing things that we're going to get to The essence of the gospel is about believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. As one person says in this book, believing is seen according to John. Martin Luther said that if we should lose all of the books of the Bible except for two, John and Romans, Christianity could be saved. I like that. If we lose everything and we have John and we have Romans, we still have the full message of the gospel. He's writing so that we may believe in Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says this, the scriptures are loaded with evidence that Jesus is God. If you just take titles given to Jesus and also given to God, you see the equality there. God and Jesus are both called shepherd, both called judge, both called holy one, both called first and last, both called the light, both called the Lord of the Sabbath, both called savior, both called the pierced one both called Mighty God, both called Lord of Hosts, Alpha and Omega, Lord of Glory, Redeemer. Titles that are given to Jesus are titles that belong only to God. Our Lord Jesus is described as eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, unchanging, sovereign, all-glorious, and eternal. Jesus did the works that only God can do. He created, he raised the dead, he overpowered the kingdoms of darkness. He forgives sin, he received worship. He declared that he had the right to be worshipped after his resurrection. And in in John 14, he is the one who is the qualifier for all of prayer. He is the mediator. He receives worship that only God can receive. Jesus is God, is God, and that's why John is writing this gospel. So that brings us now to our text. John chapter 1, verse 1. Why, if that is the mission of John, if that is the purpose statement of John, to prove that Jesus is God... Why does he start here? Why doesn't he start with the purpose statement? Why does he put that at the end? Why doesn't he just start with the birth? Why doesn't he start with the baptism? Why does he start where he starts? I want to read these verses and then we will dive in to answer that question. And I just think it's a beautiful answer. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, literally overpower or overtake it. Why does John start here? Why doesn't he start with... um, A list of all of the grandparents and all of the people that were before Jesus, like Matthew and Luke do. Why does he start here? Can I give you the reason? He starts here because he's going to prove that Jesus is God right off the bat. And I love why he does this. If you think about John, you think about his ministry. In John chapter chapter 10, um, other disciples are asking Jesus, who are you? And these are disciples that ultimately aren't truly saved. These are false disciples, false followers that fall away. But they say, Jesus, tell us plainly who you are. Tell us plainly. Sometimes he would say things and people would go, he's claiming to be God. But he's just a normal man. He's walking around like the rest of us. His feet smell like the rest of us. He smells like the rest of us. He's a man. He's not God. And then he does something. Well, that's pretty godlike. Maybe he's God. And then you look at him and you touch him and you see him and he's a man. Maybe he's getting powers from God, but he's not God. So they ask, Tell us plainly, who are you? The disciples have this problem too. Remember in the boat with the storm? Wake up, Jesus, help us, help us, help us. Jesus says, peace, be still. And they say, who is this man? Who is this? And nobody in that account says, duh, guys, it's God. We know it. I think the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection proved to us again that they didn't believe. They struggled. If they would have believed that he was God, they would have looked at him being crucified and said he's doing this to pay for sins and he will be raised like he claimed to raise himself. He promised to do that. He's going to do that. And they would have waited in Galilee like he had told them to. But they don't, I think, at the cross. I think that's the decisive blow to that question. Is he a God? Is he God? or is he man? He's dead. He has to be man. It can't be God. What John went through in the three and a half years, maybe even more than that, what John went through in always vacillating between he must be God, he must be a man. Who is he? John does not want us to go through that. He starts out by saying, No questions asked, we know without a shadow of a doubt, he is God. He wants us to enter this story understanding the reality of who Jesus is. He means for us to enter completely stunned and then never walk away from that astonishment and amazement. Some of our favorite stories have suspense in them, right? They're just nail biters and cliffhangers and you don't know, you know the, the typical whodunits and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And then at the end, the last chapter, the last turn, you turn the page and, oh my goodness, I didn't know that that was the person. and Oh, wow. And it's just amazing. Literary work of genius and you love it. John says, I could do that to you but I had that happen to me and I don't want you to go through that. I want you to know that Jesus is God from the outset and I want you to never forget it. I want you to never, ever forget it. So if he's going to prove to us that Jesus is God, what's the best way to go about doing that? He starts by saying, in the beginning was the word. Now I know these are familiar verses to you, so I hope that we can continue to learn more about God's word and kind of mull over them, kind of spin it around like a, a diamond and see just different facets of the glory of God in these verses. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, immediately a Hebrew reader of that, those just simple words, the opening of this book would think of the opening of the Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think that that is very purposeful. I think John, obviously in these verses, he's going to talk about Jesus as the creator. And so if a, if a good Jewish man or woman understands God created everything as detailed for us in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created, I'm going to tell them in the beginning, Jesus created everything. So therefore, Jesus must be God. He's going to say it twice. In the beginning was the word. And then verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Why the beginning? The beginning is as far back as you can get. The beginning is before anything had been made. That's what beginning means. So John's saying Jesus was before anything else was. Jesus was around eternally before anything else had been made. That, that's really only something that God can do. Be preexistent to all of creation. To, to not have a beginning Um, To never have a beginning, to never have been created. And that's only something that God can do. So he's saying in the beginning was the word. Jesus had no beginning. He was there before all of creation. He has to be God. Just even in that little phrase alone, he has to be God. Why the word? This is one of the things that I always just wrestle with. Come on, John, let's be clear. (laughs) In the beginning, Jesus I mean, if you want to not say Jesus and you want to be poetic or something, say truth or or uh, g- grace or say something, but the word? Why the word? Three reasons why. And the reality is it's much more clear than we think it is. Um, when I was studying this, I, I realized I was always wanting more clarity. Just say that Jesus, just say, in the beginning was, Jesus, why, why are you doing this to us? And the reality is what John is doing is bringing clarity to this issue. He's trying to prove that Jesus is God, and he's going to do that even by the title that he gives him. So three reasons why he uses the word word. Number one, in Greek, that word logos, that word for word is logos. It was used in philosophical circles to speak of a higher power, if you will. Um, If you want to believe in a God with a name, go ahead. But there's always this ethereal thing or person or force that binds us all together. Uh, Much like Acts chapter 17, when Paul says uh, there you have an idol to an unknown God. And I know that God. So, too, what John is saying here is you Greek speaking people that believe that there's this higher power named Logos, guess what? I know the Logos and he is God. I know who he is and I'm going to tell you who he is. It's the higher power. It's, it's God, but we're not going to call him God. It's, um, in the words of uh, c 3 from Star Wars, it's, he always says, thank the maker. He, I don't think he's thinking about God, but he's thinking about whoever made me, whoever created me, thank you. That was the term Logos. That was the term Logos. It was for all intents and purposes, an unknown God, but a God nonetheless. And John says, the God that you don't fully know, but you kind of give some level of credence to, I know him. And he's Jesus, and Jesus is God. Secondly, to a Jewish hearer, they knew that the word of God was absolutely important. It was entirely significant. You wouldn't know anything about God if it wasn't for God speaking The Jews were always looking for God's word. They were anticipating it. They were longing for it. They were waiting for it. They loved the word of God. And John says, you know that person you've always been waiting for? Or you you know that thing that you've always been waiting for? God speaking? Guess what? He's become a person. The word of God is a person. Where God's word is present, God is present. Therefore, if Jesus is the word of God, then Jesus is God. Again, you can 't get clearer than what John is trying to do here. The word to a Greek mind, to a Greek reader would absolutely mean a godlike force and john 's going to say, yeah that's Jesus, He is the one true God to a Hebrew mind to a Hebrew reader the Word of God, where the Word of God is present, God is present, so if the Word of God is Jesus then the Word then Jesus is the Word of God. He has to be God, very God, but number three, and I think this is a little bit more internal to the book of John, internal to John himself, more experiential to John himself. I'd say it this way. John had come to see, number three, that the words of Jesus, he came to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God, and he came to see the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way. He came to see the words of Jesus as God's truth and the person of Jesus as God's truth in such a unified way. That he's going to call Jesus the Word. Jesus' words, his message were God's truth. The person of Jesus is God's truth. And John unifies them together in this beginning. For instance, let me give you a couple examples. John chapter 16, or John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus claimed to be the truth. I am the truth. And then in John chapter 18, verse 37, he was a witness to the truth. To the message that he was speaking, so he says, "I am the truth, and then the message that I'm giving to you is God's truth. So the message is truth. I am truth, one and the same." John chapter eight verse thirty one, Jesus said, "If you abide in my word." And then in John chapter fifteen verse seven, he said, "If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit." So abide in my word, abide in me, equal, synonymous. Those are just a couple of examples. There's more that we're going to get to as we study this book. So for those three reasons, I think that John is using this word to show us that Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's message, and he is a decisive message come in the flesh. God, very God. One other example from John's own writing, it's in Revelation 19, verse 13. John also wrote Revelation And John says in Revelation 19, 13, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So the sword is the word of God. And God, Jesus, is the word of God. So all that to say Jesus is the word and the word is God. Therefore, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word. That word was already existing. It's in the imperfect tense of to be, so it's all already existing, always having existed. We could translate it this way. In the beginning, the word already existed. Or you could translate it this way, grammatically incorrect, but for a purpose. Jesus always was, wasing. He's always been. He's always been. If you're not a part of creation, then you're outside of time and space. You've always existed. And if you're outside of time and space, then you have to be God. This We're going to get into this a little bit more later, but this was one of the first heresies that really grew in the early church by a guy named Arius. And the heresy was as follows. He said, there was when the word was not. There was a time when the word was didn't exist. Contradicting this passage. Athanasius was the one that God used to raised him up to destroy that heresy. And it's easy to prove biblically that Jesus did not have a beginning. But there's nothing new under the sun. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they all claim Jesus was created, that he had a beginning. So the Arian heresy continues. If you can... Destroy the deity of Jesus, you can destroy the gospel. That's why Satan attacks the simple, profound, clear truth of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. So Jesus is pre-existent. And the word was with God. The word was with God. Literally, the word was toward God or facing God. The word was in a relationship with God. The word was standing next to God in an intimate relationship with God. Now, we're going to see the next section that says the word is God. But before we get there, John says, okay, the word is in the beginning. He has to be God, but he's also with God. How this works, I have no idea, but it's clear as day what he's saying. There are at least two people in the Godhead in this passage. There's no way that you can get around that. He is God, and he's with God. Jesus is God, but he's also with God. He's in an intimate relationship with God. He's in a beautiful relationship with God. But there is this sense in this passage, in just a couple words that we have, the Trinity. We have the beautiful doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, we're missing the Holy Spirit in this passage but we have at least two persons of the Godhead. The Trinity is not a creation of man. I think it's so interesting. So number one, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons say Jesus had a beginning, and that contradicts the first statement in John 1.1. 1, 1. The second thing that those cults do as well is they say that the Trinity is a pagan idea that is a man-made heresy, And that goes against the second phrase in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Trinity is not a creation of man. It's a revelation clear from this text. This is obvious. How it works out, we don't have any idea. (laughs) It's a mystery how there can be three persons of the Godhead and yet one God. How that works, I don't know. But I know it does because this passage clearly says Jesus is God and he's with God. Don't know how it works. The mystery that we will enjoy diving into in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, is his pre existence. And the Word was with God, co existence with God, and the Word was God. Self existence as God. The Word was God. If you had any question about who Jesus was, he spells it out clearly. Again, John says, I don't want you to have to go through what I went through. Who is he? He's a man. He's God. He's a man. He's God. No, no. He's God. He's God. And then he says he was in the beginning with God. There it is again. So we have a pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent God. And he is in the beginning yet again with God to remind us of the pre-existence, to, to remind us of the co-existence with God, and to remind us that only God, very God, could exist outside of time and space and all of creation. So then, verse 3, he gets even more specific. All things came into being through him. It's very clear. All things came into being through him. God created all things. Jesus created all things. Colossians chapter 1 says the same thing. And then he's going to say, John's going to continue, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, you read that and you kind of think, well, that's just a restatement of the beginning. Why would you say that? The first part, all things came into being through him is a positive statement. Everything that's been made was made by him. The second statement is a negative statement. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, this is just one. When God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. This is just one of the reasons why John decided, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write the positive and the negative. All he had to do was write the positive. But he wrote the negative as well. And one of the reasons why is because the Holy Spirit knew that heresies and cults would arise some 1,800 years later that would use this passage to undermine the deity of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses would turn to this passage and they would see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. In their translation of this passage, he was in the beginning with God. They're fine with that statement. They think... God the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus was outside of time and space with God the Father, and then Jesus created everything. Now, let's think in their minds for just a second. If that was the case, if the Father decided, I want to create another God, and he makes Jesus but hasn't made the universe yet, verse 1 can still exist, sort of. In the beginning was the Word. Jehovah's Witness would say, yes, after after the Father created him, he was hanging out with him. He was in the beginning. He was with God, was a God. That's where they butcher the text, and that's where they get their heresy. But then verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. He was hanging out with God. God created him, and they had nothing to do. They were just hanging out together. And then verse 3, they would agree. All things came into being through Jesus. They believed Jesus created everything that we see. But this is where I just, it's beautiful what God does. In the preservation, in the illumination, in the inspiration of his word. Jehovah's Witness would get as far as we got and say, Yeah, it doesn't really contradict. And it doesn't really I mean if you just work logically, it totally does. But but verse three, the second half of verse three, the negative statement, I just want to encourage you. When you see restatements in the Bible, don't read the first part and then start to read the restatement and go, I already got this. John's saying something specific. All things came into being through him. Jehovah's Witness would say, yes, Jesus created everything. And that verse, if all it had was that, would work. Everything that we see that has been made was made through Jesus. Jehovah's Witness, we say yes. The back half of this verse does not work in their theology. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John splits categories. He says there's, the thing that has made everything, and there's the made category. And so he says, apart from Jesus, nothing that has been made could have been made. So if you put Jesus into the made category, like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, and then you read the back half of this verse, you take Jesus out. Because if he has been made, if he's in the made category, and this says nothing could be made, stick him in the made category, apart from him being there and making it, Then Jesus has to make himself, and that's impossible. That back half has logic in it that completely undoes Jehovah's Witness reasoning. Apart from him, categorically nothing, and that includes Jesus. Jesus could not have been made like you guys are saying he was if he didn't make himself. That's what the verse says. No, Jesus is God. It's clear. There's no better way. There's just no better way. There's no simpler way, and yet no weightier, more profound way to say Jesus is God. There's no better way to do this. Verse 4 In him was life. Again, there's a bit of a creation motif in these verses. He was in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Jesus was there, and he created, verse 3. So in him obviously was natural life, but it's more than that. It's spiritual, supernatural life. It's regeneration, and we're going to get to that in John chapter 3. It's the new birth. In him is life. If you want eternal life, you have to go to Jesus, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness. Again, like creation, God said, let there be light. And there was light in the darkness, in the void, in the expanse. But this isn't looking at physical light. This is looking at spiritual, supernatural light and darkness. My Bible says the darkness did not comprehend it. That's not a good translation of that word. That word literally should be pounced on or overpowered. The darkness, the spiritual darkness, again, in John's really, really cool creation motif, he's using these words. He was life, but not just physical, spiritual, supernatural. He is light, but not just physical, supernatural, spiritual light. And his light shines in the darkness. If we have a pitch black room and we turn on a flashlight, there's no way that the darkness can overpower that flashlight and bring it back to a place where it's utter darkness. There's no way. You light a candle in a pitch black room, and there's no way, unless you destroy that candle, there's no way that you can completely get it to be black and dark again. And that's what John is saying. Jesus came into the world, and oh, the darkness tried to overpower him. He claimed in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Luke chapter 22, verse 53 Jesus says this is the hour of the power of darkness. This is the hour when he is being crucified. This is the hour that darkness can reign. That's the darkness that is referenced here. But the darkness cannot overpower. It tried. It killed Jesus. Satan thought he had destroyed the candle. But Jesus is the light of the world and cannot be overpowered. Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. Jesus is God. John writes these things so that we may believe that we may believe what? That Jesus is who he claimed to be. And by believing that he is God, very God, we would have life in his name. Why does that matter? I want to end with just four points of application, whatever you want to call it. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is God? I don't know about you. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that Finds it a little bit easier than most, maybe, to believe something. Hey, Jesus is God. Yep, I believe it. No doubt. It's obvious to me. Great. Sign me up. I believe it. No problem. So sometimes when I hear sermons, like the one that I've been preaching, I go, yeah, so what? (laughs) I know that he's God. Great. Never had a doubt. Fine with me. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is God? Why does it matter for you? Why does it matter for your friends? Why does it matter for us? Why does it matter for God? Four points. Number one, if Jesus is not God, very simply, we are still in our sins. If he is merely a person, then first he would have been stained with original sin, so he couldn't have been a perfect substitute. But let's say he's perfectly obedient and God turns a blind eye to the original sin that's inside of every human. Um, Let's say he's a perfect person. Let's say he never sins, which again, he could never have done, without being God. But let's just say, for hypothetical purposes, that Jesus is a perfect, obedient human being. Number one, when he dies on the cross, he dies, and he can't be raised from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we're in our sins. Our faith is useless. He's not God. He can't come out. He would just stay dead. Number two, he would only be able to substitute himself for one other person, and he himself would have gone to hell. If he wanted to pay the penalty for Micah's sins, let's say, then Micah goes free, and Jesus, as just a human, would have gone to hell. Obviously in there, you hear thousands of heresies, right? You, you hear thousands of problems in that. So very clearly, if Jesus is not God, we are in a huge problem and a huge predicament, and we are still in our sins, and we are believing a liar. We're believing a liar. Number two, if Jesus is God, if he is God, then we don't have to wait for revelation. The word has come. God has spoken and he has bridged the gap between us and the father. He is the mediator. So now we don't have to wait. Even as we're studying in family Bible hour, we don't have to wait for Passover to go to a temple to worship in God's house. Since Jesus is God, he is our perfect mediator. He is our great high priest, and we can enjoy a relationship with the Father because the Son is God. Number three, if Jesus is God, then we never have to fear blaspheming when we worship Jesus. You realize we worship a man. We worship a man. It's one of the reasons why the early church Fathers were killed because they worshiped a false God. He claimed to be God, but he wasn't God. He was just a man. You and I worship a man, but oh, so much more. We worship the God man, but we never have to fear blaspheming as we worship a man who came, who lived, who died, who was raised from the dead. He is God. So number four, we must, if Jesus is God and since he is God, we must worship him. That's a non-negotiable. If Jesus is God, then he is worthy of our worship. We have to. He has come to destroy the work of the devil, 1 John. And because of that, we have to pay homage to him. We have to worship him as he has given himself for us. He is God, so he deserves our every praise. Jesus is God. In this gospel account, we will come again and again and again to see how great Jesus is. Every Sunday, I pray that we walk away from here going, wow, Jesus is amazing. Every Sunday. We will see something new, something precious, something amazing every time we gather together about who Jesus is, was, and promises to be. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Prince Caspian, describes an encounter with Lucy and Aslan. Aslan is the representative of Christ. In the first book, Lucy and Aslan had met. They knew each other. And so Lucy comes back again to Narnia. And she gazes into the face of Aslan. He says to her welcome child, and she replies, Aslan, you're bigger. He says, that's because you're older, little one. She says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me to be bigger. My hope is that as we work our way through this gospel, we will find Jesus to be bigger and bigger every time we study. I'm going to ask Marty and Jeff if they would play a song about the deity of Jesus Christ, about the homage that is due his name because of who he is, about Heaven's grandeur and what he left to become one of us and about what he deserves. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. Um, This is a beautiful song. The words of this song were written in 275 A.D. And I just like to think maybe John's disciple, Polycarp, maybe Polycarp's disciple wrote this song. Reading this gospel, knowing who Jesus is. And being blown away. We get to hear the truth that was written so many years ago for us this morning. Let's dwell on the person of Jesus and then we will worship him together.